from the blooming studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another Oops, I Did It Again episode of Chemical Free Horticultural Hijinks, You Bet Your Garden. A recent caller wanted to know what I thought about tree peonies, of which I knew bupkis. I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, I'll reveal what I have since learned about these cool plants. Plus, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and maniacally mathematic manifestations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you keeping your peonies off of the dirt. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am, I am your host, Mike McGrath. And here's a special note for our podcast and radio listeners. We continue with our new feature in the news just for you audio-only files. This time out, we present a dire warning from The New Yorker about the all-too-bright world we live in and how much trouble it's causing all kinds of wildlife. So if you watch us only on TV you may want to take a peek at the podcast. In the Taking Care of Business Department, I am happy to announce that I will appear at the Allentown Public Library on Tuesday, March 21st at 2 in the afternoon. Be there, be square, cats and kittens. And finally, do you have a problem with the highly invasive running bamboo? Well, here's the answer. Bamboo toilet paper. (laughs) You can just wipe those bamboo troubles away. Sonny, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sonny. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. Appreciate your taking my call. Oh, we appreciate your making it. Uh, Where are you? I'm in Germansville. I don't know if it's by Nutripoli. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I was. Uh, I'm. I have to digress here. I was watching the news a couple of weeks ago, and a new newscaster had come in from Utah or somewhere, and it could not figure out how to pronounce New Tripoli. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They all. Everybody calls it New Tripoli. <laughs> yeah, it is Tripoli. However. All, yes, it is. Yes. All right, and you're in Pennsylvania. You know. Blah, blah, blah. Are you in the Lehigh Valley or are you above it? Uh, we're still Lehigh Valley here, yeah. Okay. All right. What can we do you for, sir? Well, I have, I have raised bed gardening. That's what I've been doing for years. And two years ago, I had uh, put my tomatoes in, and I noticed the leaves were wilting, getting spots on them, and identified it as septora leaf spot. And... Uh, so I rotated them the next year in different, put them in different beds, and yet I still got it again. And uh, I really, I don't know how to get rid of it. I, is it in? Is the fungus? Does it stay in the soil? I just, uh, I know it started. At, you know, my 
tomatoes they set, and I had tomatoes starting on there. It doesn't really affect the tomato itself, but uh, it really ruins the plant in terms of leaves. Right. Uh, the leaves just, you know, I have to pull them off. And and then you got a plant that seems to be all tomatoes and no leaves. Yes. So uh, I hate to say this, but septoria leaf spot is a real challenge uh, to conventional growers, organic growers, anybody else. Most of us, luckily, have never seen it. I've only seen it on a close friend's tomatoes, and he's an excellent um, gardener. Um, right. So I have researched this. Every time I get an extra, like, 10 minutes, there's, like, eight topics on a list in front of me that I, I really need to know more about. And I did look at this a couple of weeks ago. So... The first thing they warn you is if weather conditions are wet, humid, and cool, uh, the odds are against you. Where the pathogen is, is um, there's some disagreement about that, but there is total agreement that the most important thing you can do to prevent it is to clean up under your tomato plants at the end of the season or even during the season yeah. if they're falling down the leaves. Um, you want to have okay. a very clean uh, forest floor, as they say in um, orchards. Right. Uh, what are you feeding your plants? Uh, I just feed them a, uh, it's an organic uh, uh, tomato food, plant food, and uh, okay. I just mix it in the soil. Okay, that sounds good. Do you have any compost? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. I don't have compost. That's the one thing that uh, that I don't have. Uh, how many just, tomato plants do you? Need... How many tomato plants do you grow? I grow about eight total. I think it would be very cost effective for you to get a couple of bags of real high quality um, compost at your local independent garden center. There are some great okay. brands out there. I know we keep harping on it, and they never give us any money. <laughs> they never advertise. Uh, but uh, no, an no. organization called Coast of Maine has uh, specialty okay. composts yeah. that are excellent for tomatoes. Okay. Yeah, so them. cleaning up any debris underneath the tomatoes is important. You know, the fact that you moved your tomatoes to a place that didn't have it before um, kind of worries me because uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> this is a disease of people who grow their tomatoes pretty much in the same spots. And there wouldn't right. have been any tomato debris at your new spot. So right. um, your growing conditions uh, because of your microclimate and stuff, are probably conducive to this. And once it, it, it gets okay. established, it's really tough to get rid of. So what yeah, you want to okay. do, you want to grow the healthiest. Do you grow your own starch or you buy them? I buy them. Okay, good. You want to pick the healthiest ones. Really inspect them well. You would be surprised 
every once in a while, um, you look at a tomato plant carefully and it will already show signs of disease. This okay. was very clear in the late blight epidemic of like a decade ago. Plants were introduced yeah. into the nursery trade that already had late blight. So none of us had yeah. a chance. So examine, yeah. you know, you want to look for vigor. You want to look for good color. Um, plant, as you probably know already, plant them deeply so that the auxiliary roots can grow out of the buried stem. On top of the root right. ball, put a dozen crushed up tomato uh, tomato shells. <laughs> <laughs> honey, I, honey, I tried to hard boil the tomatoes and it didn't work out well. <laughs> a dozen crushed, crushed up eggshells, egg right on top of the of the root ball. Fill the soil in okay. with the same soil you removed to plant, and then cover the area around the plant with a um, with an inch or two of the compost. Uh, how do you support okay. your plants? Uh, stakes, uh, wood stakes that I put up. Okay, and is there room in between each plant, or do they touch? Uh, I try to keep them separate so that they don't touch each other. Uh, you know, I'll tie them up so that the leaves won't uh, swing over into the other plants just to give them enough air that moves through. Well, air is your friend here because this is a disease that thrives on humidity, you really want to space the plants out further than you might like. Yeah. You know, it, if, okay. you know, yeah. you can use the space, grow some herbs in between them, you know, something okay. low to the ground, uh, a pepper plant maybe, right. okay. but give them all the okay. airflow you can. If and when you see the okay. first symptoms appear, get those leaves out of there and put them in the trash. And the first okay. time you see discoloring on a leaf, you want to be ready to spray with either copper or sulfur. Copper. Um, okay. And again, a good independent garden center will have both of those products. Um, okay. And you may okay. have to spray every week if it's, if it's a cool and humid summer. Um, but right. if, okay. uh, if the humidity drops, and you get really nice weather, you get good wind, um, and you clean up the base, um, you will do the best you can. Okay. All right, man? All right. All right. I'll do that. That's what I'll do. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sonny. Yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. Appreciate it. My pleasure, sir. Bye-bye. Yep, sure. Take care.
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and inform all of you that our special audio-only segment in the news is coming up. This time out, we present a dire warning from the New Yorker about the all-too-bright world we live in and how much trouble it's causing for all kinds of wildlife. That's coming up next on You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGriff. Coming up later on the show, two weeks ago, I learned that I knew nothing about peonies, especially tree peonies. But I got myself learned, and I will learn you what I learned when we get to the question of the week. In the meantime, more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Johnny, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Well, congratulations there, Mike. How are you doing today? I am just ducky. How is Johnny doing? Well, I'm doing pretty good. It's starting to warm up a little bit better. We got some rain today. Uh, but what I have, I've got some oak trees. And I wish I had never planted these oaks and pines. <laughs> uh, with the oak trees, the pine trees are bad enough. I mean, they you can't get rid of the pine needles unless you just pick them all up. Uh, but the oak trees, I notice when they make a shade, they kill out the grass. You know, they don't. The shade is just eliminates all the grass around underneath the trees. And I was looking for some grass that would be low maintenance, and would be good covering for, you know, for under the oak trees. And, and uh, do you want the grass to do anything else, like get you a beer so you don't have to get up from the couch, you know, go run errands for you? Um, <laughs> where are you? That would be great. Yeah, exactly. I'm located, I'm located here in uh, uh, Texarkana, Texas, or just a little community outside of Texarkana, Connect, Texas, called Red Lick. Oh, okay. Um, I know Texarkana. Um, they yeah, were... just it's kind of northeast Texas. Right. Okay. So, um, how much does the lawn get any sun after the trees? Oh, yeah. It gets, it gets lots of sun. I've had uh, a company to come in and trim all my limbs up 
so they'll get more sunlight. Good. Uh, we've had some tornadoes, the first one thing and another, but they've taken good care of my of the, the two acres that I, that I have here. I, I just noticed that uh, now that the trees have got taller, and they do shade out the ground underneath, and uh, I don't have any grass around the trees. And like I said, I wish I'd have never planted these oak trees. Oh, come on. They're the tree of civilization. Uh, we <laughs> we wouldn't be here without oaks. Very important well, for the development true. of humans. Um, yes. Would you say that every part of the lawn gets four hours of sun a day? Oh, better than that. Okay. Except, like I say, except under the, the oak trees. But since I've raised the limbs up under the oak trees so they can probably get a little bit more sun. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking what kind of grass uh, that I can plant. I've got on my front acre, I've got quite a bit of Bermuda grass. Right. Um, but I'm looking for something up closer to the house here where I have. It's funny that I can... because our listeners and viewers in the north think Bermuda grass, he's got a weed problem. And actually, <laughs> it it is one of the preferred grasses down south. Mm -hmm. So well, there is a lot of weeds out there. I have to say that for sure. Okay. Um, that'll be a different phone call. So. You have two basic choices, and you are calling at the right time of year because okay. you will grow warm-season grasses, and they mm -hmm. are installed in the spring, whereby up in my neck of the wood, we need cool-season grasses um, that are installed in the fall. And the two mm -hmm. warm-season grasses that adapt best to shade are Zoysia and St. Augustine. So those would be your two choices. I believe St. Augustine may be available uh, by seed, but Zoysia grass is generally um, installed vegetatively. You know, you get these big sheets and you punch out uh, pieces and you plant those and they spread like wildfire. So if you do choose zoysia, uh, be aware that it will spread outside the area of your lawn. So if you don't want it to go into flower beds or something like that, um, install deep edging around that side. Where you are, zoysia is going to take over within two years. And you don't... Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, because, you know, people grow it here in Pennsylvania where it's green for like 10 minutes in July, but yours will be green, you know, most of the year. It'll go a little tan during the coldest parts of your winter, but it will survive. And the thing is, you don't have to worry about weeds encroaching during that time it's getting established because zoysia mm -hmm. grass will beat any weed. It'll crowd it out. It'll give it a wedgie. It'll steal its lunch money. Um, it is indestructible. Weeds have no chance. And you mentioned low maintenance. Well, um, zoysia grass in my part of the world only needs to be cut once or twice over a growing mm -hmm. season. 
you may have to cut it four times. Uh, but it doesn't need to be fed. For God's sake, don't encourage this grass. And <laughs> the other thing I would add is be aware that it's not just the shade. You have big trees with thirsty roots, and you live right. in an area with little rain, right? Uh, we Yeah, pretty much. But when it gets towards uh, the summertime, mm-hmm. it, it's a zip on, on, zip on uh, rain. Yes, exactly. Uh, during the springtime, we get lots of rain. So you yeah, will have yeah. to you will have to water during droughts. Um, okay. But again, as long as there is some rainfall during those seasons, you really don't have to do anything. And I grew up with a zoysia grass lawn. It is uh, it's a fabulous uh, one to have. And Saint Augustine is prone to a couple of diseases in texas that can be problematic but not zoysia this is a grass from krypton you know you plant it you let it fill in you water it during dry Mm -hmm. spells and that's all you're going to have to do okay is it kind of like a a thick type of grass when it does start to spread like a like a good covering but you wouldn't want to mow it down real low well, you know, it's funny that you say that because the the warm season grasses are totally different than our cool season grasses. Here in the Northeast, mm-hmm. we should never mow below three inches. You can take zoysia, the preferred height is one inch. Oh, wow. And it will have no bare spots. I guarantee that, you know, if I had my wallet on me, I'd put money on the table. Well, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that that would be a good shade grass for the oak trees. And I do have flower beds. Don't get me wrong. I do yeah. have flower beds out there. So make I'm sure. I'm not really too much worried about that. Yeah, make sure you prevent uh, the zoysia from getting in there. And as opposed to trying to grow grass right underneath big trees, um, uh, rake up some of those pine needles and or get some compost and make a mulch circle Mm -hmm. that starts around six Mm -hmm. inches away from the base of the tree and goes out as far as the furthest branch it'll look fabulous um and we may be surprised that the the zoysia may simply move into there over the years which i don't think would be a problem for you I've got that written down, Zoysia grass. Well, let me ask you another question, Mike. Um, um, well, is what it about a... bluegrass? I'm sorry? What about bluegrass? Is, I'm no, not no. too familiar with bluegrass. No, bluegrass but... is for here. Bluegrass is a cool season grass. Okay, okay. All right, man? I appreciate it, Mike. All right. So you take care. Good luck. I think okay. we've got a good plan here. And um, okay. bye for now. All right. Thank you. You just be ducky. <laughs> I will. Heads up, podcast and radio listeners. It is time for our audio segment just for yous in the news. And this time out, the news is pretty disturbing. In the February 20th issue of The New Yorker, Adam Gopnik reviews a book 
and almost writes a book about the book. Uh, the title of his article is Artificial Light Poisoning the Planet. A Swedish ecologist argues that its ubiquity is wrecking our habitats and our health. Now, this is, uh, I'm not sure what the answer to this is, but it lends a lot of credence to people who are fighting uh, to keep unlit areas unlit. So, among the many looming ecological disasters that terrify us today, one that only a handful of people have contemplated is sufficiently looming and terrifying is the loss of bats in our belfries. According to the Darkness Manifesto, that's the book, by the Swedish ecologist, and I pray I'm getting this close to right, Johan Ekloff, most churches in southwest Sweden had bat colonies back in the 1980s, and now most of them don't. Light pollution, his research suggests, has been a major culprit. District after district has installed modern floodlights to show off the architecture it's proud of, while the animals, who have for centuries found safety in the darkness of the church towers, are slowly vanishing from these places. Adam explains that the book is written as a sort of silent spring manifesto against the ecological devastations of light pollution. Um, although the catalog of catastrophe is real, writes Adam, what one most remembers are the beasts in his bestiary. We learn, for instance, of the ghost moth a species in which the adult males appear in fields in twilight. But these creatures are threatened by the confusing presence of artificial light. And moths, he points out, play a critical role as pollinators. So again, this is just a, a <laughs> almost like a court case against bright light. The spectral ghost moths only come out after the sun sets. And that's when the adult female comes out of her chrysalis looking for a mate. But light ruins the romance. The female admits fewer fur. <clears throat> but light ruins the romance. The female emits fewer pheromones in the presence of artificial light. And the composition of her scent is completely different from that emitted in darkness. So mating never gets started. The females wait in vain. Aww. And again, continuing, some of this is from Adam's review and some of it is from the book itself. Since the invention of the light bulb, street lights and floodlights have come ominously to disturb age-old circadian rhythms. Artificial light, the polluted light, causes birds to sing in the middle of the night, sends turtle babies in the wrong direction, <laughs> and prevents the mating rituals of coral in reefs, which take place under the light of the moon. Now, this goes on forever, but we don't have forever, so I'm going to end with a, a, just a startling revelation. 
It turns out that the strongest source of illumination on Earth is not some helpful lighthouse, but the sky beam atop the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas, creating a blinding 42 billion candle power of light every night, meant merely as a come on to tourists and gamblers, it unintentionally excites and undoes flocks of birds, genetically programmed by evolution to fly towards bright light. And in 2019, it attracted clouds of grasshoppers who flew towards the Suedo Egyptian pyramid with all the horror of a Suedo Egyptian plague. Every evening, Nevada's meteorologists could see the swarms approaching Las Vegas on their radar screens. Whoever would have imagined that reconstructing an Egyptian tomb and sending a piercing pillar of light to it from the heavens would reawaken an ancient curse? Uh, that is, aside from every screenwriter in Hollywood. Uh, the black comedy of this effect is not lost on the author of the book, but he sees it as something less than entertaining. In recent decades, he tells us, the biomass of all flying insect species has, by some measures, collapsed by close to 75%. So, turn out your lights. Well, it's time for me to take another little break and happily announce that I will take to the road once again to appear at the Allentown Public Library on Tuesday, March 21st at 2 p.m. That's 2 in the afternoon, cats and kittens. You can enjoy lunch in the wonderfully resurrected downtown of Allentown. Come see me at 2 o'clock and then you can do whatever you want. I'm well-read Mike McGrath and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. 
I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, I'll tell you all about what I didn't know about peonies, but I know now. You won't want to miss it. And it's coming up right after another phone call at 888-492-9444. Ralph, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Well, thanks for making it, Ralph. How are you? Um, great. Um, beautiful day. 62 degrees. I'm out in the garden in mid-February. And it is the same temperature as we record your call in Pennsylvania. But where are you, man? I'm in uh, High Falls, New York. Okay. County. Uh, how far upstate? Uh, 90 miles outside of the city. Okay. The city. How dare you? You know, where I live... You know which city I'm talking about. Well, yes, because you're a New Yorker. But where I live, when I say I'm going into the city, I mean Philly. And somebody next to me can say the city and they're going into Manhattan uh, because they're equidistant almost from here. Anyway. We'll have that argument here, Mike. Yeah, enough geography. What can we do you for? I'm looking to plant rinoculus this year, and I've done some research. They seem a little bit finicky, but doable. And from what I've gathered, I should soak them, sprout them, and then put them in the ground. But I'm looking for maybe dates and any pointers to have success this first year. Okay, I'm no expert on these bulbs, but the first thing I'm thinking is they're not winter hardy in your area. No, no, treat them as annuals. Well, that's one option. Um, Your other option would be to either um, dig them up at the end of the season and store Mm. them over the winter and replant them in the spring. The advantage Mm -hmm. to doing so, as opposed to using new bulbs every year, um, is the bulbs would be larger, uh, they would produce more flowers, and perhaps even kind of get associated with your climate and not be so finicky about cool soil at the beginning and the end. The Mm -hmm. other option is to grow them in containers and then bring the containers in in the winter. So there's no digging. You know, you would just drag Mm. the containers into an unheated garage or basement, as long as it's not going to get freezing in there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's the biggest thing to me. Now, I've never Mm -hmm. planted them, but the the soaking before planting... To me, that's absolutely imperative when you buy a bare root plant, like bare root Mm -hmm. roses or shrubs. I mean, especially if you're buying mail order, uh, bare root plants are so much easier and less expensive because you're not paying for the shipment of all that soil. But the plants, uh, uh, raspberry cane, same thing. The plants are generally dehydrated. And one way to give them a good start is to soak them in water 
um, for like 12 to 24 hours before you plant them. Um, mm -hmm. But you say that that's what you've been told to do by the bulb seller or whatever? From what I've read, soak for four hours, changing the water every hour, and then put them into moist soil and then cover it with maybe an inch of moist soil, throw them in the closet for two weeks, dark, cool, dry, at which point I want to throw them in the ground. I just want to, I guess, I'm not going to go the pot route because I've got about 200 of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to go straight into the ground, and then I've got some, like, hoops and, like, warming cloths, I guess, or plastic to keep the soil warm on colder days. I'm looking for, like, what days I should do it, and then with the digging up, when would you suggest digging them up? Okay, so who gave you, where, where was this advice from? Was it the bulb seller, an extension service, some bum on the street? The bulb seller. Okay, good. Then follow their advice. Um, I think okay. forget about season extension devices. These things bloom pretty rapidly um, once okay. they're planted into warm soil. Um, what you can do is clear the area where you're going to plant them. If Clear the area where you're going to plant them. If there's any kind of mulch or any debris on the surface of the soil, scrape that off, rake that off so that the soil can warm up naturally. And then mm -hmm. in your region, I would not put them out uh, before June 1st. I would plant them oh, on wow. Well, I mean, cowards win in these games. So think about okay. it. You, you know, you got all of June, all of July, all of August, and who knows how much of September. I mean, if that's not enough for them, they're just not for you. But if you put them out too early and they get a cold shock, not freezing, but just not warm enough for them, you'll set flowering back by two weeks to a month. Whereby if you, you know, just distract yourself with shiny objects and put them out two weeks later than you thought, you'll be ahead of the game. Okay. They're not too sensitive to high temperatures? Uh, no, I don't believe so. You know? Okay. But All again, right. I mean, I would follow the advice of the bulb seller and if you go through, you know, a summertime heat wave with a drought, I would keep them well watered. You know, they're, they're these okay. kind of fleshy plants um, that yeah. like a lot of water. A lot of their relatives are invasive plants um, that grow next to streams and swamps and creeks um, or just soil that doesn't drain well. So I would think your biggest job is to hold your horses, then make sure they get plenty of moisture over the summertime. All right. That's very doable. All right. Good luck to you, sir. Send us pictures. I will. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for your help. My pleasure. Bye-bye. As promised, the question of the week, which is actually a question from two weeks ago that I finally have an answer for, and we're calling it Peonies and hydrangeas. When is a tree not a tree? Or, I've seen peonies from both sides now. From the Department of Corrections Department. Many of you groaned when I tried to answer a question about tree peonies from a listener two weeks ago. In my defense, your honors, 
I plead ignorance about this and many other issues. I would also plead the fifth, but I'm trying to stop drinking. When I realized that the question was about peonies, I didn't fret. After all, I had inherited a beautiful pink herbaceous peony when we purchased our house circa 1985, and it has bloomed beautifully every year. Despite being planted so close to the road, it could tell you the license plate number of the noisy truck that just rattled the windows while passing through. So I knew what the flowers looked like, smelled like, and that you need to support them or those big floppy heads will droop so much that some of them can hit the ground. My solution was to cut the lowest ones, some for display in a vase indoors right away, and some to be wrapped in damp paper and stored in the downstairs fridge until summer, when they would appear prominently in the house, leading people to mistakenly believe that I might actually be good at this thing. It's an old trick a florist once taught me. And as all herbaceous peony owners must do, I then ran string across the front of the rest of the plant to support the taller flowers. Then I became a peony expert. A new shoot had appeared next to the plant one spring and I just let it be. If you could see my garden, you'd realize that leaving things be is kind of our motto. Relinquiata siem solem. My indifference was rewarded three seasons later when a bright red peony with somewhat different leaves appeared on this sprout, which I later learned is called a sport. Now I was a peony breeder. Bring on the questions. But the caller wanted to know how to plant herbaceous peonies, perennials that die back to the ground every winter and tree peonies, woody perennials whose above ground growth persists over winter. At that point, I realized I had never actually planted a peony and wasn't sure what the deal was with the tree form. I was almost sure that it was a peony grafted onto a rootstock. Luckily, I added, but I'm not sure, which is the second motto of my garden, and urge the listener to follow up on my useless advice with some research, which is also what I did as soon as I got home. Turns out the tree peonies aren't grafted, and they're not trees. They are woody perennial shrubs that bloom earlier than their herbaceous cousins, bearing their flowers up to five feet in the air when fully mature. Come on. Why are they called tree peonies? Is shrub a dirty word in horticulture? I thought I didn't like them because of a single stalk tree hydrangea a neighbor has on display. A short window of loveliness followed by a long period of looking like a dead tree with faded flower heads on top. Special guest Martha Stewart will help me solve that four-season visibility problem in just a bit. Tree hydrangeas do not naturally have a tree form. All hydrangeas begin life as shrubs, and only one type, paniculata, can be trained to a single trunk, 
and that's done to very young plants in the nursery trade. So they are not natural. They're kind of declawed hydrangeas. But they're not grafted either. So that's strike two. And now I have to try and hit the ball to the right-hand side of the field or my specialty just lean into the next pitch. Now, about Martha Stewart. I met her a few times back in the 1990s when I was the editor-in-chief of Organic Gardening magazine. In fact, we were the judges at the New York City Flower Show one year. During that time, we talked about plants a lot. And I came away feeling that she was a charming and intelligent woman who had a true love of horticulture. Now, to bring it all home, while doing my research on these tree and not a tree things, Google suggested I read an entry in Martha's blog called My Blooming Tree Peonies. And that Cats and Kittens revealed a design concept I really liked. Instead of displaying these plants alone in the open as, quote, specimens, Martha has hers planted in a grove formation in the understory of large mature trees, creating a flowering border whose blooms are five to seven feet in the air. Note, tree peonies can tolerate shade better than their herbaceous cousins, and they bloom before those big trees can fully leaf out. Now, yes, Martha has helpers to take care of the plants, but so do I. Like her, I do all the planning, and my tireless intern, Sean, does the dirty work, except with containers where the dirt goes under my fingernails. Anyway, big advantage with the tree form. Because the flowers are held up high by sturdy wood stalks, they don't flop so you don't have to struggle to keep them off the ground. And their height makes the flowers much more visible than the ground huggers, so that visitors can better enjoy the flowers that Marco Polo once described as, quote, roses the size of cabbages. Well, that sure was some interesting information about the taller forms of peonies and hydrangeas. Now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to poach my peonies if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shores at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please, I have enough gray hairs already. Please include your location. Thank you. 
You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show and hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created by Lerner and Lowe. Ken Queter is our musical director. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer and set decorator is the always cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page, which has really been hopping lately. Hoppin' Teresa Radke is our peerless princess of profound production. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Judicious Jake Boyer does the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Also starring Jacob Morris as Peter Gunn and Zach the Tack as Telly Savalas. Who loves you, baby? Why our band of card sharks, roustabouts, and fortune tellers, that's who. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, is tired of me always sending him my daily horoscope just to show him that I'm right. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I have peppers sprouting, tomatoes waiting, peas propagating, and lots, lots more going on. And I'll keep picking my plants to pursue until I can see you again next week.